0: actually an opportunity uh, and privilege for me to come to Oxford to give this lecture and it's also nice to step out of South Africa which is a very mad country at the moment for a few days and have an opportunity to reflect and to stand a little bit back from the kind of maelstrom of politics around health and politics around uh, education. So I must say I've only been here for 24 hours but I think I've managed to think more clearly than I have done for about the last six months, but you'll have to work out whether that's the case or not with what I say in the next half an hour. Um, But thank you. Um, I want to start just on a a slightly uh, personal note, which is that, um, as was mentioned uh, a second ago, it's almost 30 years ago uh, that I came to Oxford uh, in 1983 to study at uh, Balliol, and It was in 1983 when I was a member of the junior common room uh, at Balliol, that I first encountered uh, HIV or first heard of of AIDS. Uh, I can still remember uh, a JCR meeting, a chap called Paul Brunker, uh, raising the alarm about HIV and talking about the Terence Higgins Trust and the need to support and to raise money for the Terence Higgins Trust. And to be honest with you, in 1983, I didn't pay a great deal of attention to HIV and AIDS. I was in my mad, uh, ultra-left socialist phase, as has been hinted uh, just now, and I thought it was more important to sell the militant newspaper at Cowley Car Factory uh, (laughs) than to pay attention to one of the real challenges that was facing uh, the globe. But I returned to South Africa in 1989, uh, in the kind of dying days of the apartheid regime. Again, not really thinking a great deal about uh, HIV or its developmental uh, impact. Um, but one of the people I worked with in the African National Congress was a person called Zaki Ahmad, who you may have heard of, the other person who founded the Treatment Action Campaign and a person who lives with, with HIV. Um, and I was uh, living with Zaki in 1990 when he was diagnosed uh, with HIV and that was the sort of first real rude awakening to the meaning of HIV and particularly to the meaning of HIV uh, in a developing uh, country country context. And you know since then it's been a bit of a kind of whirlwind. Um, in 1994 I joined something called the AIDS Law Project uh, because we started to realize that HIV was going to be a major, major cause of discrimination and stigma and of human rights violations, and we needed to uh, protect people and to use the law to try to protect people against uh, discrimination. Um, Between 1999 and probably 2006, it was really like living in a war. Uh, I had countless friends and countless comrades who uh, died because of of HIV, and in fact, you know, in 2003, uh, friends were dying sort of every week or every uh, two weeks, uh, despite the fact that by 2003, HIV was clearly treatable, uh, and had been treatable for for three quarters of a decade uh, in countries like uh, England and, and and the United uh, uh, States. So. You know, it, it feels strange after all of that to come back to where, in some ways, AIDS began for me, which is Oxford, uh, 30 years later on the eve of World AIDS Day, um, and to talk about the end of AIDS. But what I want to say to you this afternoon is that although the Joint United Nations program on AIDS is uh, celebrating this World AIDS Day under the theme that we are within sight of conquering uh, HIV and that the end of AIDS is in sight. The argument that I want to make to you and which I want to illustrate from our experience in South Africa is that we are nowhere near the end of AIDS Uh, and further that what we are in is a very different period of the HIV epidemic where the reality is that there may in fact be a lot of backsliding and loss of many of the pointers of progress that we have managed to make in the last uh, last uh, five or ten years. So, a lot of what I want to say is based on anecdote but a second string to my bow is to argue to you and I think it's particularly important as people involved in research that part of our problem at the moment is that there is simply just not enough evidence being gathered on some of the key issues and challenges of the day in relation to the HIV epidemic and it's that absence of evidence that is making it difficult to bring about the shifts in the response to HIV, which are necessary if there is, at some point in the future, to be an end to AIDS. So as I said, UNA says we're near the end of AIDS. If you look at the global report on AIDS, which they released I think last week, every World AIDS Day, they release a big, expensive, overly expensive, schlicky, schlocky uh, global AIDS report, and this year is the same. Uh, But they say things like this, the pace of progress is quickening. What used to take a decade is now being achieved in 24 months. We are scaling up faster and smarter than ever before. It is proof that with political will and follow through, we can reach our shared goals by 2015. They continue to say the evidence gathered from countries around the world would tell a story of clear success. A new era of hope has emerged across the world that had previously been devastated by AIDS. That's the world of AIDS according to UNAIDS. Now, there is no doubt that in the last decade, there has been significant progress on HIV. Across the world, across the developing world in particular, there are now six to seven million people receiving antiretroviral treatment, whereas a decade ago nobody in the developing world received antiretroviral treatment. In fact, a decade ago, the uh, head of the AIDS program in the United States said, well, you can't really provide antiretroviral treatment in Africa because people don't have watches and they can't tell the time. And if they can't tell the time, they don't know what time to take their medicines. That was truly a statement that was made around 2002. Well, there are now 7 million people in the developing world or across the world who are on antiretroviral treatment. In South Africa, this is a slide that is provided by our treasury. We have gone. From having nobody on antiretroviral treatment in 2004 to today, uh, this is a year out of date, where there are 1.7 million people in South Africa receiving antiretroviral treatment through the public health system on a daily basis. The result of such large numbers of people on treatment is that, again for the first time, after a decade of increasing mortality and morbidity associated with HIV. We are beginning to see declines in mortality. And this is a slide from the Treasury, which, as you can see, the number of deaths per annum related to HIV have dropped by about 100,000, have dropped almost by a third in the last five years since the serious uh, scaling up of access to antiretroviral uh, treatment. In South Africa, the life expectancy of men and women has risen from a low of just above 50, four or five years ago, almost back up to uh, the age of 60, which of course in your Oxford terms is still very early death. Uh, But it's rising uh, in South Africa again. And there have been other dramatic successes. We fought in 2002 for a program to prevent mother-to-child transmission uh, vertical transmission using uh, Nevirapine at the time, and in 2002, the risk of a pregnant mother with HIV passing HIV onto her child was somewhere in the region of 25 to 30 percent of all pregnant women infected uh, their children. And in 2002, about 70,000 kids were being born per annum infected with HIV, and because there was no antiretroviral treatment almost all of those 70,000 children uh, uh, died before the age of one. Some survived uh, a few years longer than that. Whereas last month, or the month before, it was reported that in South Africa, we have now, because of the mother-to-child prevention program, reduced the rate of transmission to under 2.5% postpartum, at six weeks postpartum. So a massive reduction. Uh, uh, in the rate of HIV transmission from from mother to child. So there's progress. There's progress in treatment. There's also progress in prevention, if we think about the tools that we now have at our disposal when we talk about prevention. In the last few years, we've learnt about the efficacy of male circumcision as a means of reducing the risk of a man being infected With HIV. We know that a circumcised man is almost 60% less likely to be infected with HIV than a man who is not circumcised. We've learnt about the possibility, the theoretical plausibility of an antiretroviral based microbicide as a basis for preventing HIV infection in women, which, if and when it is brought, to the market or brought to to communities could have a dramatic impact in reducing HIV infections, particularly amongst women who remain additionally additionally vulnerable uh, uh, to HIV. And perhaps most important of all, we've learnt about the benefits of antiretroviral treatment in terms of the preventative effect of antiretroviral treatment. We know now that antiretroviral treatment, because it reduces viral load, dramatically reduces infectivity of people with HIV and therefore can play a role in cutting the number of new HIV infections. So, you know, the landscape of 2012 is very, very different from the landscape of 2002. So you might therefore ask, well, why can we not talk about the end of AIDS in the way that UNAIDS is beginning to suggest that we can uh, talk about uh, a prospect of a world, a, world without, a world without AIDS. Well, the argument that I want to make to you is that <clears throat> in many ways the very success of our efforts against HIV has created a new set of challenges and that we have not internalized or fully understood the challenges that we now face in a context where in my country there are nearly two million people receiving antiretroviral treatment on a daily basis, where across the world, mostly in developing countries, there are six million people receiving antiretroviral uh, uh, treatment, and where health systems in developing countries, usually weak health systems, are being required to support a program around HIV and TB, which they struggle to maintain uh, a grasp on. And and those are some of the the challenges. So what I want to to do is to identify what I think are some of the threats, Uh, threats which if we do not uh, develop policy and programs for, run the risk of unraveling progress that I have uh, spent the last five minutes uh, describing. What are some of those threats? Well, to go back to my initial slide, I want to talk about five things in particular. The first is ARV-related side effects and the impact of ARV-related side effects on both take-up of treatment and of adherence to treatment. The second is the challenge of retention of people diagnosed with HIV within systems of care. The third is this issue of adherence and what we do and what we don't know about adherence and what are the challenges to uh, drug adherence. And as you know, we're still at a point where people must strictly take their medicines on a daily basis, otherwise risk developing viral our resistance. The fourth point I want to talk about is the question of a new generation of human rights violations that are associated, no longer associated really with discrimination on the basis of uh, HIV status, but ironically are associated with rights and the need to roll out programs to prevent HIV and to treat HIV and the degree of coercion that is developing in the rollout of those, uh, those programs. And then the final point, just before I come to a conclusion, is to talk about what is happening within civil society. Because if you study the history of the epidemic, one of the things you will not fail to notice is that the motor of the rapid progress around the treatment of HIV has always been a motor fueled by people infected and living with HIV and fueled by activism. Now, what happens when that motor begins to run out of fuel? What happens when that motor stutters, when it's when it's not sustained? What does that say for the, for, for, for the next decade in relation to this epidemic? So, first of all, just to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about side effects. Now, I don't want to over-exaggerate side effects, so don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I lived through 10 years of what we called AIDS denialism in South Africa, where people like President Thabo Mbeki exaggerated uh, the medical side effects associated uh, with HIV and used it as justification to delay uh, providing medicines through the public, public health system. But what we are seeing And I think what we'll see increasingly is that because of the delay in introducing newer and better antiretroviral treatments with lower side effect profiles to people in developing countries, and because of the growing numbers of people who are on treatment, we are seeing larger numbers of people with with side effects. Now, just to give you an, an example, as you probably know, one of the worst drugs we have in our arsenal against uh, HIV, a drug that has been thrown out of the window many years ago in countries like this, is Stavudine, or d 4 t one of the early antiviral uh, drugs that of course saved a lot of lives and continues to save a, a lot of lives. Stavudine should have been replaced, and has in most countries of the world been replaced with a newer, better drug called Tenofovir, in combination with Tenofovir. But in countries like South Africa, and if we still have this problem in South Africa, uh, in many other developing countries, because Stavudine is cheaper, and because tenofovir is expensive, Stavudine continues to be uh, used quite widely in first-line treatment regimens. Now, Stavudine is associated with three or two side effects in particular. The most common side effect is something called lipodystrophy. I think people know, you probably know what lipodystrophy is. It's basically fat uh, redistribution um, and uh, can be a cause of embarrassment, to put it mildly, stigma, uh, to put it extremely. You know, in South Africa, we get pictures in the newspaper. uh, You know, we have sensational newspapers there, just like you have sensational newspapers of women with grossly enlarged breasts, for example, that are... Consequence of of stav- or men with it's a horrible term I don't like to use it but what people sometimes call buffalo hump which is a redistribution of uh, again fat to the to to, to the back of the, the neck but we're beginning to see well in fact I I spoke you know a few a few days ago to uh, Judge Edwin Cameron who again you may know one of our leading activists around HIV a person who lives with AIDS and who's now a uh, member of our Constitutional Court in South Africa, and he said, no, you know, I was giving a World AIDS Day talk at Standard Bank last week, and I was very surprised at the numbers of carers and people who know what they're talking about, who talked about the problems of dystrophy uh, that they are encountering, and the fact that the evidence of dystrophy is deterring people from going on to treatment, and is also causing some people to... To, to, to drop off, uh, off treatment. And when I inquired further, with a number of, another friend of mine, I got an email saying hundreds of thousands of people are still on stavudine, and I suspect that in the public health system, many health workers don't see lipodystrophy as a big enough side effect to warrant a ri- uh, regimen change, or they're reluctant to switch people to tenofovir for some other reasons. Of course, lipo is, a, lipo is an awful side effect, it's probably not life-threatening, at least in the short term, but it's psychologically terrible, and patients should be taken off 4 T or AZT when they, have, when they have symptoms of it. So I think that is challenge number one, if you like, that we have to take uh, much more seriously, and that has a number of uh, implications for the expansion and for the quality of, of uh, treatment for HIV, and, of course. If we're not getting people onto treatment for HIV, we're not getting the preventative benefits of of, of HIV treatment. The second issue that I want to talk about, as I said here, is the question of of retention uh, in care. And again, this lecture has given me an opportunity to investigate what I have uh, suspected uh, about declining retention uh, for some time. And I suspect it because in South Africa we do not have quality monitoring systems to monitor what happens between the point when a person is diagnosed with HIV, the point at which they need to enter into care for treatment and what happens after they've they've begun treatment. So this morning I I sent an email to uh, somebody called Dr. Francois Fenter who is one of South Africa's most uh, experienced HIV uh, clinicians who's been treating uh, people since the beginning of the HIV epidemic, and said to him, Francois, what do you think is going on? And François's response was, initially, and I'll just read this, initially our retention was superb, and now I worry it seems to be falling down a bit. Programs are becoming a bit easygoing." This has to do with poor monitoring and evaluation and follow-up systems and attention to social issues. Also, the recurrent drug stockouts undermine patient confidence in the system. I'll come back to that. As integration has occurred, as it should, and I see we'll be debating horizontal versus vertical uh, programs uh, later this afternoon, people now see the real face of healthcare, which is not the friendly, happy, HIV-motivated docs and staff of the past. Which is exactly right. You know, when we started our programs, we started them as specialized programs, we started them with activist doctors, activist nurses, people empathetic and sympathetic and determined to prove the success of this program. Now it has been mainstreamed into the health system as a whole, and the health system as a whole treats all people badly and doesn't distinguish between treating people with HIV badly uh, and treating other people badly. And that has a negative impact on on, on retention. And to the extent that there is evidence, uh, some which Lucy pointed out to me yesterday afternoon, it bears out the cause for concern about about retention and about uh, adherence. Uh, Lucy drew my attention to a meta-analysis, you'll see it in the paper, uh, by Rosen and Fox which again looked at a large number of studies, I think it was published in 2011, a large number of studies uh, that looked at retention and looked at different phases of, of retention. Now one of the points that they made was that these studies are all very different, uh, that the studies don't ask, all ask the right question. And they say in relation to the question, what proportion of patients who test positive for HIV are staged, enroll, and remain in pre-ART care until ART eligibility and initiate ART It's not possible to answer that question with the data available. A research gap. But they then go on to say, but we tried. We did carry out some investigation. And on the basis of the investigation, we concluded that only about 18% of patients who are not yet eligible for ART when they are diagnosed with HIV remain continuously in care until ART availability. 18% 18% from the point of diagnosis to the point where you're still in the system when somebody puts you onto ARVs. Now 18% may be a little bit low, but it doesn't shock me to hear that based upon my own knowledge and experience and interactions with the, with, with the South African health system. So a lot of people are falling out <coughs> of the system after diagnosis and before going on to treatment. And that's particularly concerning in this era of mass scale-up of HIV testing. And as I'll suggest in a minute, scale-up of HIV testing with very little attention paid to the quality of HIV testing and quite a lot of uh, coercion involved in HIV testing as well. In South Africa, between April 2010 and June 2011, we had what was called the HIV Counseling and Testing Campaign, Voluntary <coughs> HIV Counseling and Testing Campaign. 15 million people were tested for HIV in that period, 15-month period, 15 million people. 1.6 million people were newly diagnosed with HIV in that 15-month period. Now, if you apply the Rosen Fox findings to the 1.6 million HIV-positive diagnoses, What does that tell you about the number of people who move from a positive diagnosis into antiretroviral treatment and and, and care? And what does that mean for public health? And what does that mean for the so-called end of AIDS? So those are the issues around retention. Moving quickly now to the question of of, of adherence. I said a few minutes ago that I think that we are in a new phase of of the HIV epidemic. And I think one aspect of this new phase is that never in the history of medicine have we faced a situation where, across the world, six or seven million people have to receive medicines on a daily basis, have to receive medical information to persuade them to adhere uh, to those medicines, and have to receive some form of monitoring. Never in the history of medicine Or tell me if I'm wrong on that. In South Africa, 1.7 million people. Now... We're not monitoring adherence. We can tell you that there there have been 2 million people who have started treatment uh, in the last uh, eight years, seven or eight years. We can tell you that there's 1.7 million people who are still on treatment. We don't know what happened to the 300,000 missing people. And we don't honestly know whether the 1.7 million is in fact 1.5 million or 1.4 million. But the question that I've been asking is two questions. One, the first question is what is the impact of collapsing health systems on people's ability to obtain their prescribed medicines? Now people, unfortunately, don't draw the connection closely enough that once you become dependent on a developing country health system for your ARVs, if that health system folds as it's folding in South Africa, The the, 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 uh, treatment program uh, falls underneath it? And secondly, what's the consequence of an absence of publicly financed health messaging that promotes uh, and explains the need for adherence? Now again, I think that's a difference between now and say five or six years ago. When we were at the height of our campaign as the treatment action campaign to gain people access to antiretroviral treatment, we pioneered And established on a wide basis something that we call treatment literacy. What we meant by treatment literacy was that we helped people, not just to say, I must take the blue pill and the red pill and the yellow pill, which is the standard approach to medicine uh, unfortunately, and is the wrong approach, and partly explains failure of TB programs and so on. We helped people to understand the ideas behind virology, behind viral replication, behind resistance, etc. etc. We help people to be able to identify their medicines to say which was a nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor and which was a this and which was a that. Literally people could, could could say that, they could identify it, we developed songs about how you take your your medicines and which medicines that you need. But that was on a, re- on a relatively small scale, but it was when HIV was very controversial because of the resistance to providing people to treatment. Now that we have treatment at mass scale We should have treatment literacy at mass scale, but we don't. Because an NGO, like the Treatment Action Campaign, cannot substitute itself for what the public health system system ought to be doing. And linked to that, as I said, we have the the underlying problems of the health system. Let me just tell you one story which is happening as we speak. In fact, I wanted to read you out a text message I got an hour ago, but my phone is somewhere else. But one of the health districts in—ten in, uh, uh, minutes left. Great. One of the health districts in, in one of our poorest provinces in the, is in the Eastern Cape is called the OR Tembo uh, Health District. It has 1.8 million people. HIV prevalence 23%. Estimated 40,000 people on treatment within that very poor district where Nelson Mandela and other people come from. Now the problem with the OR district is that it depends upon a medicine's depot at the largest town in the district, a place called Umtata. And the problem with the Mtata depot is that control of the Mtata depot has been taken over by gangsters, by criminals. And so the medicines that go into the Mtata depot, the antiretrovirals, on Monday go out of the back door on Tuesday, and get sold across the roads to a private hospital and to private doctors and so on. And everybody knows that this depot is completely corrupt. But, and I've been talking to the Minister of Health in South Africa about it in the last few days. We've managed to get them to do an investigation into it. But such is the corruption, and such is the gangsterism around the corruption, that people are afraid to take action against that depot. Now, the result of the paralysis of the Umtata depot is that all the clinics that depend on its medicines are not getting their medicines. People are meant to get a supply of antiretrovirals for a month, sometimes for three months. People live in rural areas where sometimes they will walk for 10 or 15 kilometers to the clinic to get their medicines, or people will take taxis, but people are dirt poor, so the 50 rand or the 60 rand that it costs them to take a taxi to a clinic that can't give them the medicine is not just another 60 rand that can be popped out of the pocket again the next day. So what is the effect on those 40,000 people in Umtata in, in O.R. Tambo? We don't know. We know anecdotally as TAC because we're trying to alert the government to the problems. But TAC again is a little pinprick of, of people. Forty thousand people on treatment. How many have given up their treatment because they can't access they can't access their, their medicines? And the question is, what does this mean for adherence? If there's poor adherence, what does it mean for resistance? What does it mean for failure in virological suppression? I've been trying to get my hands on a a report or a survey that was done by Medecins Sans Frontieres in. The, another district of South Africa called the Shawe, which is in KwaZulu-Natal. They, they, for bad reasons, don't seem to want to uh, make it public, although they've told me about it. But that report uh, shows very poor virological suppression amongst all the people that they tested within that district. And it seems to me that the circumstances that exist in one rural area of South Africa are not fundamentally different in another rural area of South Africa. So, are we seeing the beginning of virological f- failures to properly to, to completely suppress uh, HIV virus because of uh, treatment interruption, poor adherence to treatment, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And you see, it's these realities that make me angry when organisations like UNAIDS talk about the end of AIDS, because Until we overcome and achieve quality and not just numbers in the response to HIV, we are very, very far away from the end of AIDS. And to suggest that we are near the end of AIDS is misleading and, frankly, I think dishonest. And, frankly, I think that it has got a great deal to do with UNAIDS' need to self-promote itself in the context of declining donor contributions to support uh, a body uh, like UNAIDS which is anyway hugely wasteful in its uh, day-to-day conduct. So I want to finish with just two more pointers that concern me. Uh, And that is the question of uh, human rights violations and uh, and, and, and the weakening of civil society, and I lost where I was going with the slide, so I won't worry about that too much. Um, <laughs> uh, but as I said a minute ago, in, in my view the social environment around HIV may be worsened in certain respects, because Where in the past there was apathy there is now a numbers game associated with HIV prevention and with HIV treatment. And in this numbers game there is a robbing of individual autonomy and individual rights in order to do what it is said to be the right thing to do. I could give you a lot of illustrations of that. I think, for example, that the HIV counseling and testing campaign that I referred to, which of course is trumpeted around the world, 15 million people tested for HIV, but what was the quality of those tests? Anecdotally, we heard many, many stories of people who would go to a clinic and they would be told you can't get your medicine, not ARVs, any medicine unless you have a test for HIV so that the clinic can get its numbers and it can relay its numbers through to the district and to the province and, and, and up. But I think for me one of the most graphic and concerning examples in South Africa at the moment is around the issue of voluntary male circumcision. Now, as you know, voluntary male circumcision reduces risk of HIV infection in a region of 50-60%. In our most HIV-infected province, KwaZulu-Natal, we had a very radical development, which was that the king of the Zulu nation in KwaZulu-Natal broke with the tradition of the Zulu people, who have not circ- where men have not circumcised for 200 years, and introduced the program of male circumcision uh, in the interest of HIV prevention. Very good. The problem is that kings aren't that democratic. (laughs) Uh, Neither are they that concerned about individual uh, autonomy. The second problem is that in this province of KwaZulu-Natal, for a reason that we are still trying to investigate, the province, instead of opting for traditional forceps-guided surgical methods of circumcision, which is largely safe, opted to purchase a device called the Tara Clamp, uh, which is imported from Malaysia. Now, the Tara Clamp is essentially what it sounds like, which is a clamp, which is attached to the penis, and where the man or the boy wanders around for a week uh, with this clamp on uh, until the foreskin drops off. As far as we can see, the Tara Clamp was originally developed to carry out circumcisions amongst infants and was never intended for men. Uh, and the Tara Clamp was tested in one of the three randomized control trials uh, that proved the efficacy of male circumcision in Orange Farm in South Africa. And they stopped using the Tara Clamp because of the adverse side effects or adverse consequences of the Tara Clamp. But nonetheless, the KwaZulu-Natal government opted to use the Tara Clamp probably because there's some corruption involved in the purchase of it. And if I can just read you an email, again, another email report to give you a sense. We are picking up lots of stories of boys and men who are being shepherded into circumcision camps. That's what they're called, circumcision camps. No consent, no proper understanding that if I'm circumcised I'll have a reduced risk. It doesn't mean that there'll be no risk of HIV transmission, all the, the stuff that we said. Uh, and really forced to undergo circumcision. So this is an email. Richard received an urgent call from TAC members of Utungulu district because of serious circumcision complications. The community is in a serious crisis of Taraklamp male circumcision that was done on the 14th and 15th of October at the E Mabuyeni tribal court. Uh, We visited some community members including families. During the visit, I managed to meet young boys, and all of them are in a serious condition after they've been circumcised in the past two weeks. One of the young boys, who is 10 years old, his mother did not receive a consent form for her son. Most of the boys suffered from bad wounds in their private parts, blisters. One of the boys had external bleeding almost three days nonstop after being circumcised with the Tara Clamp, Clamp. he was admitted to hospital. Um, The parents asked for transport to the local clinic to see their children, they were refused uh, uh, transport. Um, the next day I went to visit a junior secondary school that's where most of the boys are. I managed to meet the school head of department because the school principal was not in the office. The head of the department informed me that after the circumcision, the school is facing a huge challenge such as high rates of boys absent from schools, boys seeing seat- seating complications, meaning having struggling to sit down in the classroom. They need to sit and open their legs because of the pain they feel. Regular out-of-classrooms because they need to go and drink water. Sometimes you found them standing outside toilets holding the side of their private parts because of the pains they feel. Some are using various walking sticks to accommodate their complications. Uh, this is male circumcision. Uh, and don't get me wrong, and I say this because I know this is being recorded in podcasts, we support male circumcision. Consensual, voluntary Properly, ethically, safely conducted male circumcision, but the rush for numbers and the use of devices that are not safe is insupportable, and will have an impact on this epidemic as we as, uh, 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 as we go forward. So these are some of the challenges that I think we truly face in the real world of AIDS in 2012, rather than in the imaginary world of AIDS in in 2012. The point that I want to conclude with is just on the issue of of civil society. As I said, civil society has been a motor for a proper response to to HIV. Wherever you look in the world, at whatever point in the epidemic you look, if you look back to the 1980s, (coughs) coming into being of ACT UP, the gay men's health crisis in New York, if you look at the early days of the response in Uganda, Uh, um, I've temporarily forgotten the name of the project in Uganda, if you look at the emergence of the treatment action campaign uh, in 1998. Civil society, people with HIV, have defined the agenda, have interacted with scientists, and have changed the way that medicine is approached and that epidemics have approached. Civil society has helped to raise the bar uh, around HIV and potentially to raise the bar around the way we ought to treat many other causes of illness and causes of of disease. But the situation that we face in 2012 is of a weakened uh, civil society. And part of the reason for that is because whilst it was convenient, it was the flavour of the month in the 2000s for the diffids and the cedars and the Belgians and the Dutch and all the rest of them, to put a lot of money into HIV. It's not the flavor of the month any longer. And there is a perception taking hold that HIV is being conquered, that HIV is not the global threat that it was once perceived to be, if it was ever that global threat. And as that perception takes root, the money flows out of HIV. And the place where it first flows out of is out of the many community-based organizations and non-governmental organizations and to some extent the activist organizations which have driven uh, the response, not just in Africa but in Asia, in parts of uh, Eastern Europe and so on and so on. And I fear that in the current global context, the weakening of civil society will become another cause of the dumbing down of HIV and the reduction of HIV or the manner of treatment of HIV to what we have become traditionally accustomed to in the treatment of things such as TB and to an eventual acceptance of an endemic HIV epidemic globally where there continue to be high levels of morbidity and mortality uh, ex- associated with HIV, but where there is no longer the outrage associated with that morbid- morbidity and mortality because HIV has just become another uh, so-called developing country uh, de- disease that can be left to run its, uh, its natural uh, cause. That, I would argue, is the possible direction in which the response to HIV is developing uh, as we go into uh, 2013. And that, I think, is the direction that we have to try uh, to arrest uh, if we are to prove that a lot of what was accomplished with HIV in the last 10 years is sustainable. And if we're to use HIV, most importantly, as a lever to try to improve uh, and transform public health and healthcare services in developing countries as a whole. So I think that's my time up, I can see Kenneth is getting itchy so I will stop at that point, thanks.